like to ask you please to turn to the book of Romans, to the book of Romans and to the first chapter of Romans. I would like to read Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, who was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, even Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we received grace and apostleship, unto obedience of faith among all the nations for his name's sake, among whom are ye also called to be Jesus, to be Jesus Christ, to all that are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I would like to begin this morning what will no doubt be a lengthy series of sermons concerning the book of Romans. On another occasion, I would like to talk to you about why I've chosen to study this book and about the importance of studying this book. But for this morning, I would like to hold introductory matters to a minimum and to come quite quickly to this very text that I've just read to you. Let me just say these words, though, by way of introduction to the book of Romans. The book, of course, as you see from the first word, is written by the Apostle Paul. It was written by the Apostle Paul to the church that was in the city of Rome somewhere early in the, in, or rather, somewhere in the middle of the first century in around 58 AD. Now, the Apostle Paul had never been to this city. Later, he will be imprisoned in this city. But at this point, he had never been to the city of Rome. The church there was not started by his labors. It was started through some other means. But if you look at your, at your leisure at the last chapter of the book of Romans, even though he had never been there, he was very intimately acquainted with many individual persons in the church of Rome and no doubt knew a great deal about the church through them. The church was in the city of Rome, of course, and thus was a cosmopolitan people. It was a church which consisted of all sorts of people, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free men, probably the rich as well as the poor, and drawing from that city, no doubt, a whole variety of kinds of people. Now, when Paul wrote this book to them, they were an established church. That is, they knew the gospel. He was not writing to them and giving them their first exposure to the gospel. They knew it. They were somewhat grounded in it. They had believed it. It had transformed them. And yet the Apostle Paul thought it was necessary to write to them, to give to them in writing a clear statement of what the gospel is and of the many implications which must flow from a right understanding of the gospel. And thus you have this book, this letter. It's a personal letter. We call it a book. But you have this long letter, this book, which is truly without question, the most clear and the most logical and the most full presentation of the gospel and of its implications. Now, it's important that we appreciate that he is writing this to Christians. 
As I speak to you, I assume that for the most part, not everyone, but for the most part, I'm speaking to Christians. He writes to them about the gospel. He doesn't assume that they don't need to hear it. He assumes that they need to understand it very, 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 very well for their own comfort, for their own security, and certainly so that when he comes later on to explaining the many implications of the gospel, that they won't see these implications as foreign, but that they'll see them as something rooted and flowing from a true and right understanding of the gospel. And so I will speak to you, as many of you are the people of God, and endeavor to explain what Paul explained to them of the gospel. But it is a portion of the word of God that in a special and wonderful way is applicable to non-believers. There are many portions, all portions of the word of God are important and should be understood by every individual in the world. But there are some that more directly, directly address the needs of those who are not believers. And this is one of those passages. And so to you who are the people of God, I would encourage you over the next weeks to endeavor to bring some of your unconverted people to consider the gospel as Paul sets it forth in the book of Romans. And to those of you who attend with us and yet are not believers, and we're very glad, of course, that you're with us, I would invite you to pay special attention to this portion of the Word of God, to endeavor to read it before you come on the Sundays so it'll be fresh in your minds, and to pray that God might use His Word to bring you to faith. In these first verses, in the first 16, I'm sorry, the first 17 verses, the Apostle Paul gives something of an introduction and a, like a personal greeting. He's never been there, so it's a rather extended introduction and personal greeting. And in this section, basically, he speaks about three things. He speaks about himself, he speaks in a summary form about the gospel, and he speaks about his intentions and his interests in the people of Rome. And I would like us this morning to consider something of what the Apostle Paul says in reference to himself. And we'll not look at everything that he says, but please look in verse 5, Romans chapter 1 in verse 5. He has just given some summary statements about the gospel and of how Jesus was raised from the dead. And then he says in verse 5, through whom we received grace and apostleship unto obedience of faith among all the nations for his name's sake. Now, there are several other things that he says about himself, but verse 5 is, is a good summary of the many things that he does say. And in this passage, there are two things that he wants these Romans to appreciate about him. One is that he is a recipient of grace himself, personally. What he's going to write about is not something that's distant and distracted from him. He himself is a recipient of grace. And the second thing that he wants them to know is that he has been made by Christ to be an apostle unto the nations. Now, what I would like us to do this morning is just to look at the first of these that for us to consider that Paul wants the Romans to see him as a recipient of grace. And then next morning, God, next Lord's Day morning, God willing, we'll look at the second matter. We must appreciate that the Apostle Paul, before he was a Christian, was a Pharisee. And to a Pharisee, the idea of grace is quite overwhelming. To the Apostle Paul, he did not see grace simply as a theological subject for scholarly contemplation. It was not merely an idea to him. Grace was something that he had experienced. It was something that he had experienced and which had wrought a powerful change into his life. The theological idea of grace and his experience of grace 
thoroughly govern everything that he wrote and everything that he taught as an apostle. And that is especially true in the book of Romans. The idea of grace and his experience of grace permeate the book and color and govern everything that he says. And if we are to rightly understand what he writes in the book of Romans, then we need to have at least some introductory understanding of what, he's re- of what he means when he says that he is a recipient of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I would like us to do now is very briefly to define the grace of God and then to look at three of the major lines of thought which Paul associates with the grace of God. All right, in the first place, a very simple definition. What is the grace of God? Well, it is God's favor shown to men. But it is not favor as if it is just in his heart that he has favor. It's not static. It is something that is expressed. It is expressed in God's personal activity towards sinners. One person has written that it is his goodwill in action, and perhaps that's in a summary way a a proper definition. Grace is two things. It is the favor of God, number one. And number two, it is this favor of God expressed in his personal activities to undeserving men and women and children. It is the favor of God expressed in God's personal activities toward undeserving men and women and children. Well, now that brief definition in our minds, let us consider these three lines of thought which the Apostle Paul associates with grace. And the first is this, and we'll spend more time on this first point than on the other two. The first is that the grace of God is free and unearned and undeserved. The grace of God is free and unearned and undeserved. It is not something that we can buy with money or with religious activities. It is free. There is nothing that you can take in your hand and go to God and say, I will give you this if you'll give me grace. It's absolutely free, without price, without money, without religious ritual. There is nothing that you can bring to God and offer to barter. Nor is it something that can be earned. Grace is not something that can be earned by good works or by efforts at moral reform. You cannot go to God and strike a bargain and say, God, if you will give me grace, I will earn it. By changing my life, by stopping this, by doing this, there is no way that the grace of God can be earned. It is not only free, it is unearned, and it is wholly undeserved. Everyone who ever receives grace is someone who deserves to receive wrath and judgment and condemnation. It is wholly undeserved. God is never under any obligation to show grace to anyone. And when he does give grace, it is a result of his free and uncoerced will. Now, before the Apostle Paul was a Christian, that idea was absolutely foreign to him. Before the Apostle Paul was a Christian, he was a Pharisee. He says that was the strictest sect of the Jews. And their view of salvation was that God had given you his law... And, of course, they considered themselves, rightly considered themselves, the the people of special blessing. And they went and perverted that and taught and believed that if, because of their special privilege, 
that if they would simply keep God's law, keep themselves away from sinners, do every manner of righteousness, that if they would do that, they could gain God's favor. They could gain salvation on the basis of their obedience to God's law. And that idea was shot through and through with the Apostle Paul. And for the Apostle Paul to come to the conclusion that grace isn't like that at all, that it is free and unearned and undeserved, was a, was a radical change of mind for him. Now let me try to illustrate the difference between what the Apostle Paul believed before he was a Christian and what he believed after he was a Christian concerning this matter of works and grace by a rather simple illustration. I used this illustration in a different setting once. I hope some of you will remember it. Maybe the repetition will drive it into our minds. If you, can, if you can pretend for a moment that you're a fifth grader or a sixth grader or somewhere right in that category, you're in elementary school and it's announced to you that there is going to be a spelling bee, a spelling contest in four weeks. Everyone is expected to partake in that and the winner will receive a new 10-speed bicycle. Well, consider how two different boys respond to that. You have this little boy named Johnny. He's a wonderful student, a very courteous boy, eager to learn, has a very good attitude about this. He hears about the spelling contest. He's all excited. He goes home, begins to prepare. He's going through the list, memorizing all the verses that he can memorize. A very positive attitude. On the day of the contest, he comes. He's very gracious, very eager, sparkle in his eye, ready for the questions. The, the words are asked. He answers them all correctly. He wins the contest. He accepts it with humility. He's not arrogant. He's a really lovely boy. And he wins, the, he wins the prize. He wins the 10-speed bicycle. Now, what was the ground for his winning this 10-speed bicycle? Well, he won it because of his self-control. He won it because of his ability. He won it because of his effort. He won it on the basis of works. And it would have been very right for him to go out and say, look what I've done. All my study paid off. This good mind was so useful. Look what I've done. Now you have this other boy named Billy. And his situation is altogether different. Billy is a nasty, naughty rascal. Billy is surly. He has a mean spirit. He picks on the kids. He mocks the teacher. He's an ugly kid, disrespectful in every way. On the day of the contest, he can't be bothered. Learning and spelling and reading is for sissies. And he has to be in this situation, but he's in it with disdain. He's asked his words. He can't spell a single word. He does the worst of anyone in the class. He's an absolute failure, but he's not ashamed. He's a failure with contempt. And what is the result for him? Well, let's say that the result is this, that the teacher just loves him, pities him, puts his arm around him, goes out and buys another bicycle and gives it to him. On what basis did Billy receive a bicycle. It wasn't on the basis of works. It was on the basis of undeserved, unearned, free grace. The teacher simply wanted to do it, not coerced by anything other than her own affections and her own determination. Now that's an earthy kind of illustration, but that's, a, in my judgment, that's a very accurate illustration of the difference between the Pharisees' view of how one is to be saved on the basis of works and the Christian view as to how salvation comes on the basis of grace. It is free. It is unearned. It is altogether undeserved. And whereas the first boy could have said, look what I did. 
the second boy could only be amazed. He could only be amazed that someone so morally undeserving, to say nothing of intellectually undeserving, should have been so freely given everything that was offered in this contest. Well, this is a very important point for the Apostle Paul. It is not, as I said earlier, it is not merely that it was a theological idea to him. It was Paul's own experience. And I'd like to change now from trying to illustrate this point from our schoolboys to illustrate the same point from the life of the Apostle Paul. We said earlier that before he was a Christian, that he was a Pharisee. Obviously, he was a Jewish man. He received the best of Jewish education under the scholar Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. He believed that you could gain God's favor. He believed that you could also gain God's obligation by moral reformation and distancing yourself from that which was unclean and unholy and ungood. And he says that he was zealous above all of his peers in these beliefs. He was zealous above all of his peers in endeavoring to go on in moral reformation, in cutting himself off from the heathen and the godless and the sinners and making himself pure and righteous unto God. He says that, that he was way beyond all of the others. His zeal was such that he says he persecuted God's people. And you read in Acts 22 and Acts 26 and the passage that Mr. Barker read this morning, you read some of the details of that of how it is that he went from place to place and dragged people out of the synagogues. Men and women, he says, beat them, bound them, took them to prison, arranged for their death so that he considered himself to be a murderer. It's not merely that he stood up and publicly spoke out against Christianity. He actually took the people of God, chained them, put them in prisons, and arranged for them to be executed and to be put to death. He was proud. He was arrogant. He saw himself as a man who was truly right in all these things that he did. Although, if you read Romans chapter 7, you have to appreciate that somewhere in the midst of that arrogance, he had something gnawing at his conscience. Because although he was trying so carefully to keep all of the law, the tenth commandment that said, Thou shalt not covet, was unattainable to him. And while he didn't realize that he was breaking the other commandments too, he did begin to perceive that he was breaking the commandment, Thou shalt not covet. And that ate away at his soul. It caused death to rise up within him. Well, here's the Apostle Paul breathing out threatenings and slaughters and blasphemies, he said. No repentance, no love for the true God, no desire to please Christ, no sadness and, w- and eagerness to be done with his, with his hypocritical life. And he's going on the road to a certain city with orders in his pocket to take certain Christians and bring them to prison. And Christ himself, in a unique and miraculous way, appeared to the Apostle Paul. And without going into all the details, here's this blasphemous murderer who hates God, who loves his imagination of God, but hates God and hates Christ and hates the people of Christ. And Christ goes to him, strikes him down, causes him to be blinded, reveals the gospel to him, causes him to be baptized, and washes away his sins forgives him, causes him to be a new man, changes his whole outlook upon himself, changes his habits, changes his desires, changes him radically. The Apostle Paul says of his own conversion, I was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but 
the grace of our Lord abounded exceedingly with faith and with love through Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul had changed from being a Pharisee to being a Christian. And a part of the change was that he saw that he had been saved by grace, which was wholly undeserved and wholly unearned. You look at the Apostle Paul, he did nothing to earn grace. He did everything to lose it. He radically and violently and consciously opposed everything that Christ stood for. And yet it was to him that the gospel came as an irrefutable proof to everyone who would be interested that grace is not to be had on the basis of merit. It is given to those who are undeserving and to those who have never earned it. Now because this was such a radical thing to the Apostle Paul and because it was his own experience but more importantly because it is at the foundation of the whole Christian understanding of the gospel the Apostle Paul spends a great deal of time demonstrating from different vantage points how it is that grace is unearned and free and undeserved. And I would like to take a few moments for us very briefly to consider four of the arguments that he uses to demonstrate that grace is undeserved and unearned. Let us consider very quickly now and very briefly these four ways. He demonstrates that salvation is by grace, which is undeserved and unearned, in the first place by teaching simply that salvation cannot be obtained by the law. You want to prove that salvation is by undeserved grace? Well, the first thing you do is prove that it cannot be obtained by works. It cannot be obtained by obedience to God's good and holy and just law. Please turn to Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. Remember now the background from which he writes, the Apostle Paul, as the Pharisees from which he came, once believed that the God had given his law so that by obeying that law, you could actually please God, gain his favor, and enter into heaven. When Paul realized that wasn't the case, he's very clear to write about what the real function of the law is. And one of the things that he says about the law is brought forth in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be brought under the judgment of God. Because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For through the law cometh the knowledge of sin. Now he said many things here, but just notice these two things that he says about the law. In the first place, the law is going to meet everyone in the day of judgment. And no one is going to be able to stand up and to let the law speak and to hear the law say, you have kept all of my points, you are justified, enter into heaven. The reverse is going to be the case. Law is going to stand up and speak and every mouth will be closed. No one will be able to make a statement to God about how righteous they have been, about how they've obeyed God's law, about how they've pleased God. Every mouth will be shut in the face of the law. And he goes on to say, in a way that cannot be misunderstood, no one will ever be justified by obedience to the law. It is simply impossible for someone to be saved by doing the things that God requires in his law. 
Nobody who is a liar will look and say, the law says thou shalt not lie, therefore I must reform myself and stop lying and get into heaven. It will never happen. No one will be justified by doing the works of the law. No one who is a blasphemer will say to himself, I'll simply close my lips and stop blaspheming, keep God's law, and enter into heaven. No one who is an adulterer will say, the law says thou shalt not commit adultery. I will stop, and by stopping, please God and get into heaven. No one will get there that way. No one at all will get there that way. He goes on to say in verse 21, but now apart from the law, a righteousness of God hath been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ unto all them that believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And here's verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul, you old Pharisee, you used to believe that by obedience to God's law, you could gain his favor and get into heaven. Now you're saying that the law is going to stop every mouth and nobody will get into heaven on the basis of obedience to the law. How in the world will anyone get there? Paul says there is now a righteousness available to you that doesn't come by the law. It is the perfect righteousness of Christ that is given to some. And he says this, you are justified freely by grace. You are not justified expensively by effort. You are justified freely by grace. Another passage where he makes the same point is in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9 which was read earlier this morning by Mr. Barker. I'm sorry, he read from 1 Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, where the apostle says in reference to himself and Timothy, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus. Paul wants to make the point. Grace is unearned and undeserved. Salvation is by grace, unearned and undeserved. And the first proof is that you just can't earn salvation in any way by obedience to the law. Now, if I may say this as just an appendix, there are some people, even in our own day, there were people in the Apostle Paul's day, and there are people like them in our own day, who will come along and give a lip service to, to this in a certain way. They'll say, well, certainly, you can only be saved by grace. Nobody could save themselves. Nobody will ever be saved unless God is the one who takes the initiative. But they'll go on to say that while you are saved by the grace of God, once God has taken those initial steps to you by grace, you must do something. You must do something to add to that if you're ever to be saved. They would say God will extend himself. He had no reason to ever do that, but he does that by grace. God offers you the gospel. He didn't need to, but he does that by grace. Now it's up to you to do something. Now it's up to you to change yourself. Now it's up to you to add obedience to God's law. And with his grace and with your obedience, you'll wonderfully be saved. And that's a lie from hell. And it's not an exaggeration for me to say that it's a lie from hell because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 1. He says there's this other gospel that somebody is teaching, different than his gospel. And he says it doesn't matter whether an angel or another apostle or anyone else comes along and preaches this other gospel. It's accursed. And anyone who believes it will be accursed. 
I'd like you to see just how emphatically he says that. If you'll turn, please, to the book of Galatians in chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. There's this subtle idea, you see, that some of these people who, were, who had been Jews, who were Jews, who believed in that pharisaical view of salvation, who professed to become Christians, they taught that, okay, you must have Christ, you must have the gospel, you must have grace. But in addition to that, you must also have religious ritual and obedience to law. And so he says this in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, if you receive circumcision, circumcision was required by the law. It was more, though, than just an individual physical act. To be circumcised was representative of being submissive to the whole law. He says, I say unto you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will profit you nothing. Yea, I testify again to every man that receiveth circumcision that he is a debtor to do the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You are fallen away from grace. This is no theological idea that is only important to theologians in the Apostle Paul's mind. Getting this straight about being saved solely on the basis of unearned, unmerited, undeserved grace, as opposed to grace plus your efforts, getting this sorted out is not a matter just for theological speculators. He said, if you don't have this straight, you'll be damned. If you don't have this straight, you'll be lost. There is no salvation to anyone who thinks that they have such an in with God that they can do something to earn his favor after he's given a little bit of initial favor. You're either saved by grace or you'll go to God on the basis of works. You'll either admit that you're unworthy and undeserving and are desperately dependent upon God's free grace or you'll say, I'm not really dependent. I really have some abilities within myself. I'm glad for the help of grace, but I've got these abilities too. You'll say, I'm not really dependent. I really have some abilities within myself. I'm glad for the help of grace, but I've got these abilities too. You either go to him on the basis of dependence upon grace, or you'll go to him upon the basis of dependence upon works. You can't have both. He says, if you have works, you're severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Now, this was not only the teaching of these Judaizers, as they were called. This is the teaching of those in our own day who profess to be the people of Christ. There are huge religious bodies who teach this idea. The Roman Catholic Church teaches this idea. And I do not say this to paint the Roman Catholic Church black. I have no hatred in my heart for those who are Roman Catholics. But I have a concern for the souls of all persons. And the teaching of that church is that God has deposited grace in the sacraments and in the church. And if you are to get to heaven, it will be on the basis of grace that you receive through your efforts, through your penance, through your religious works, through your monies, and through other means. And they're wedded together, grace and works. And the Apostle Paul says, if you would be justified by works, you are severed from Christ. If you would say, I can have grace plus my works, you have thrown out the whole gospel, the Apostle Paul says. And that comes back to this idea that grace, according to the Christian understanding, is wholly, not partially, wholly undeserved, 
unearned and freely given. And to try to receive grace in any other way is to deny that and to push the Christian gospel out of your reach. Salvation cannot be obtained by obedience to God's law, nor can salvation be obtained by a handful of grace and a handful of works. Salvation is by grace only. That is, it is unearned, undeserved, and free. We're trying to outline how the Apostle Paul proves that salvation is unearned and free. The first point is that he declares without equivocation, you cannot earn salvation. Your obedience to God's law, your endeavors to earn, will never bring you salvation. The second proof that he makes is that he teaches, he proves this idea by teaching that grace is received through faith. Now, we need to spend only a moment here. I trust this is just the reverse side of what we've been saying. He says you cannot receive grace through obedience. You do receive grace through faith. Look again at the passage we read in Romans chapter 3. Let me just read verse 22 and verse 25. In Romans chapter 3, verse 22 and 25. For all have sinned. I'm sorry, verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ unto all them that believe. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. If there is to be the reception of grace, it will not be through earning it by works, It will be simply by opening the hand of faith and receiving it. Now, why is God so concerned and is Paul so concerned to stress this matter that you can only have have salvation by faith and not by works? Well, there are many reasons, but one reason is stated in Romans chapter 4 and verse 16, referring to justification, salvation in general. He says, therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace. If salvation is received through any other means, then it's no longer of grace, then it's no longer free. What is faith? Well, faith is not a work. What is faith? Faith is simply the open hand that receives something. Faith is simply believing that something is true. It's not some work. It's not some moral reformation. It's not some obedience to law. It is merely the reception. It is merely the open hand that grasps what God puts in the hand. It's not a hand that's forging its way through all kinds of obstacles and forcing God to give you something. It's just a hand that's opened. And salvation is put there and it closes its grasp upon it. That's what faith is. And he says it is by faith that it might be of grace. That is, that salvation might be obviously free and unearned and unmerited. Let us go to the third proof that he gives that that grace is unearned and unmerited, and that is that he teaches that grace abounds in the context of sin. You see, the Pharisees would teach that grace abounds in the context of righteousness. They would teach that if you wanted to have God's favor, you must be radically righteous. And they meant radically righteous. You must yourself be living in every way conformed to the law of God. And you must be very careful not even to touch those who were sinners. 
Pharisee would go out in the street or in the marketplace, jostle shoulders with people. He didn't know who they were. He'd come home and go through ceremonial cleansings. He'd have to be washed because he might have touched a sinner out there in the street. And he was supposed to be free from contamination if he was to ever have God's favor. The idea of grace abounding in the midst of sin would be absolutely foreign to them. And that's why they were so strict. And while we see this as an abominable thing, they were serious in this. And that's why they were so strict. Because they really believed that grace was not in the context of sin. It was only in the context of the most radical obedience to the law of God. But notice what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Here this great Pharisee, who believed what they believed more strongly than most, he says in Romans chapter 5, and again we'll look later, we'll, un- we'll look at the context carefully and the rest, but to- today just this one phrase, where sin abounded, grace did abound more exceedingly. The Apostle Paul's own life, as we've already considered, was an illustration of that. Paul was not in the context of loving Christ, of being submissive to Christ, of worshiping Christ, and in the context of this wonderful righteousness, receiving grace. He was in the context of exceeding, abounding sinfulness, hatred, opposition to everything that he should have loved. In that context, grace abounded, came to him exceedingly abundantly with faith and with love. The illustration that we've often referred to in Luke chapter 6, you remember that immoral woman? Jesus was in the house of the Pharisees eating and this immoral woman comes in. They wouldn't touch her. They didn't like it that he touched her because of what I've said earlier. They felt you couldn't touch these kind of people. And if you touched them, good night, you would be certainly contaminated. You'd have to go through all sorts of cleansing. So they wouldn't touch her. It was awful in their eyes that Jesus allowed this woman to touch her. Remember, she washed his feet with her hair and with her tears. She was so repentant. She was so grateful for for a Savior that she touched him. And they didn't like it that she touched him. Well, what Grace came to her. Grace came to her. It didn't come to them. It came in the context of sin. It came in the context of her understanding that she was sinful, of her having an awareness that she was foul and unclean in God's eyes. But though grace, though rather though sin was abundant there, grace was even much more abundant. There are illustrations of this principle wherever you find a real conversion. That grace abounds in the context of sin. You go through the history of the people that God has wonderfully used and over and over and over again. You'll find people that were abundant sinners, exceedingly awful sinners in some occasions. And yet right there, in the context of no earning, no efforts, no desire, no interest, God comes and creates interest and creates desire and creates guilt and creates a longing for Christ. What is that? That's an evidence that grace is not deserved. Many of you can go through your own life's experience. And as you look at your own experience, it's a proof to you that grace is not deserved. Now, some of you may be so smug that you can't see that in your own life experience, but those of you who have been truly converted can see that. Some of you can remember back when you were like Pharisees, when you were very moral, but didn't love God, didn't have any sympathy for Christ, didn't have a warm heart and melted soul for the Lord or for sin. God came to you and you didn't deserve anything. Some of you can remember living a life of hedonism, 
giving yourself to every pleasure that came in your path. You didn't love God or righteousness or anything but yourselves. You didn't deserve anything but wrath. And yet God came to you, made you to see hedonism as heinous, made you to see Christ as altogether lovely, and converted you. Some of you were converted in the dark alleys of drug addiction and other kinds of vices. You didn't deserve anything. You didn't deserve anything but judgment. But God came to you, opened your eyes, delivered you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and changed you. What is that? It's an evidence that grace, whatever it is, is not something earned. It is something that's freely given, that is given unearned and to those who are undeserving. If salvation came to the morally upright, then you would say, well, see, the Pharisees were right. Grace is for those who deserve it. But because salvation comes to the morally corrupt, it is an evidence that grace is for those who don't deserve it. It is unearned and it is free. There is a fourth line of thought which the Apostle Paul uses to demonstrate that salvation is unearned. And I will simply and quickly state it. And that is that he teaches this, he he proves this by teaching that God is free and unobligated to any man. I would like you to read in Romans chapter 11, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, you have this statement about God that is a stumbling block to many. But it is a very important statement if we're to understand grace. In Romans chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, you have these words. For he saith to Moses, as God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that hath mercy. This is a reference to a literal historical situation. It is a reference to the days when God was dealing with his people, when he was bringing them out of Egypt, and there was this pagan king, the Pharaoh of Egypt. God sent his messengers to Moses, uh, to, to Pharaoh, with this proclamation, let my people go. And Pharaoh would not, and Pharaoh would not, and Pharaoh would not. And the scriptures say that he would not, not only because of his own obstinance, but because God hardened his heart. And even when Pharaoh was finally compelled to allow the people to go, it was not because his heart was changed. His heart was always hard. And as soon as they were out, and as soon as he felt what he'd really done, he sent his armies right after them. He, he always had a hard heart because God didn't soften his heart. God gave him a hard heart. And the apostle is not in any way trying to justify that. He doesn't think God needs to be justified. God is right. God is holy. Whatever God does is right. And it's for us just to accept whatever he does is right. It is the definition of what is right. But he does make this statement. God will choose to whom he will be merciful. It's not to him that runs. That is, it's not to him who has great efforts. It's not to him that wills. It's not to him that who wants something. It's just of God. God is obligated to no one. God is obligated to no person. There's no one that can come to God and say, God, you owe me grace. You owe me salvation. Now, we act like God is obligated. 
We act like because we're his children and he's our father in some general sense and because he made us and because he put us in this situation, it's his fault. Somehow he owes us something. Paul says, no, God doesn't owe anybody anything. And our views of grace will always be very dim unless we appreciate God didn't have to give anyone grace. God didn't have to be kind to anyone. He is kind. But we're so repulsive to him, he could have justly damned us. And it was simply because he freely chose that anyone receives salvation. Why should we believe that grace is unearned and free and undeserved? Well, we should understand it because salvation cannot be by works. We should understand because it is brought to us by faith. We should understand it because grace abounds in the midst of sin. And we should understand it because God is free and no one has a claim or an obligation upon God to force him to be gracious to them. The fact that God is merciful is simply because he chooses to be merciful. When the Apostle Paul says that he, through Christ he received grace, it was a radical thing to him, altogether different from his background. And it was that which melted him and brought him to the deepest sense of reverence and devotion to God. Now there are other things that I had wanted to say to you about grace. Let me say them to you in an outline form. The first was that grace is undeserved and unearned and free. Now, I hope I've repeated that little phrase enough times that it's sunk in. The second idea that Paul associates with grace is that every aspect of salvation is brought to us by grace. To receive grace is to receive every aspect of salvation. You trace salvation back before the foundations of the world to God's eternal decrees in election. What is the basis of election? Well, the apostle says in Romans chapter 11 verse 5 that we are elect according to the purposes of grace. At the very first thought about salvation, it is said to be bound up with the idea of grace. The fact that God chose to save anyone is simply because he is gracious. But you go on and you trace through how it is that God brings salvation to his people. Calling. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15 says that we are called according to his grace. What is calling? Calling is that event where God, by his spirit, comes to you as an individual. Maybe he brings you through traumatic circumstances. Whatever it is, he comes to you. He makes you aware that you need him. He makes you aware that you're sinful. He makes you aware that the gospel freely offers forgiveness. He gives you faith and repentance. He says, come, and you come, because he's made you come. Calling is what? It is the result of grace, according to that and other passages. Faith is the fruit of grace. In Acts chapter 18, verse 27, it speaks about those who believed through grace. Why did they believe? Well, it wasn't because they had this, a certain facility that uh, other people didn't have. It was because God gave them faith on the basis of grace. He graciously gave it to them. Repentance is the gift of God on the basis of his grace. Justification in Romans chapter 3, that passage that we read, we are taught there in verse 24 that we are justified freely through grace. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says there that both redemption and forgiveness are on the basis of grace. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we are taught, For by grace have you been saved through faith, 
and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God that no one should glory. It is on the basis of grace. Every part of salvation, from the first thought and election to the final point of glorification, is the result of grace. If a person is forgiven for sins, it's because of grace. If a person is changed from his old habits and his own ways, it's the fruit of grace. If a person has faith, it's because God has been gracious to him. If a person is repentant, it's because God has been gracious to him. If a, God, if a man is useful in God's kingdom, it's because God has been gracious to him. If a bad husband has been changed into a good husband, it's because God has been gracious to him. Salvation in all of its details and all of its aspects are said to be caused by grace. Now, that ought to do something to us. I'm sketching this out to you. You ought to dwell upon this. That ought to do something to those of you who are the people of God. Every good thing that's ever been done for you, everything in connection with redemption, everything is not the product of your labors. It is the fruit and the effect of God's rich, free, undeserved grace. He's just loved you and done these things for you and given you this grace through Christ Jesus. It also ought to be a great cause of encouragement to you who are not believers, to you who do feel a sense of guilt, who do feel that you're so unclean it's like you're covered with some kind of slime and you'd like to be washed of it all and you don't know where to go. You don't know where there's a detergent that is sufficient to cleanse you of this corruption. There are some of you, there are some of you that live in sins that if you could do something radical to your flesh to get you out of those sins, you'd do them, but you can't. Well, what's the hope for you? What's the hope of forgiveness? What's the hope of transformation? What's the hope of change? It's grace. It's not in works. It's not in effort. It's not in labor. It's in grace. And the Apostle Paul knew that. And that's why he said at the outset that he is the recipient of grace. Now, there's a third thing that I wanted to say to you about grace. The first was that it's unearned, undeserved, and free. The second was that grace brings every aspect of salvation. And now the last is that grace promotes humility, gratitude, and obedience. There are usually only three responses to grace. And it might be a helpful thing for you to ask yourself, do I fall into one of these three kinds of response to grace? There are some people who hear about grace and they respond with indifference. For whatever reason, they respond with indifference. It's not relevant to them. They don't have any sense of need for grace. Perhaps they believe that God owes them something and so they don't need this. Perhaps they feel that they're so good that God can't possibly be against them. So they don't need grace. Perhaps they're totally irreligious. Have no thoughts about God, no thoughts about sin. Just, that's just a blank subject to them. They're not interested. They're absolutely indifferent to grace. If they're indifferent to grace, it is usually because they do not understand that God is justly angry with them. If they're indifferent to grace, it is because they do not understand that God doesn't have to be nice to them. They don't understand justice. They don't understand that though they are whimpering under their sins, God doesn't whimper. God is angry. Though they feel great heartache and shame, God is filled with wrath 
because they so violently and blatantly disregard his law. They think he should be like them. They think he should be tolerant, understanding, pitying. Well, he does pity, but he will not pardon unless they repent. They don't understand that, so they're indifferent. They're indifferent to grace. There is a second response to grace, and that is that some take it and turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. You have that statement in Jude chapter 4, in Jude verse 4, where Jude spoke about certain men who crept in privily, ungodly men, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 anticipates that there will be some who will take the grace of God and say, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. We don't have to obey the law. We don't have to do anything. This is just wonderful. God will be so gracious to us. And they use that as an occasion for sin. They say, God is, is reconciled to me because I've said my prayer. I've asked Jesus to be my Savior. I've walked my aisle. I've done my thing. I've asked Christ to be my Savior. Therefore, I'm under grace and the canopy of grace will keep me from anything. And they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. They say, I'm okay. doesn't matter what I do any longer. I'll go to heaven because of grace. And they've used it for an excuse to sin. That's a horrible thing. And there are people who profess to be Christians who fill the churches in this country, who are hypocrites, who are liars, who are sexually immoral, who covet, who do not watch their lips or their appetites or their eyes. Grace is a wonderful thing, they say. We're not under law. We're under grace. And they completely misunderstand the point of those texts. And they turn the grace of God into an occasion for sin. Paul says, God forbid. It is a heresy. It is an error that will damn people to hell to receive the grace of God and to turn it into an occasion to justify bad behavior. There is a third response. It is the response which true grace promotes. It is the response of humility, of gratitude, and obedience. When the Apostle Paul examined his life and considered what he had been, the chief of sinners, an apostle born out of time, the most undeserving of the apostles because he said he had persecuted the church of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. He had received grace. It didn't turn him into a sinner. He had received grace. He was reconciled to God. And it made him to know humility. It is by the grace of God that I am no longer that arrogant, blaspheming Pharisee. It is by the grace of God that I'm no longer a murderer. It is by the grace of God that I've been changed. It always happens when somebody is truly affected by grace. It always happens. It brings them to humility. They say with great sincerity to themselves and to others, who maketh thee to differ? And they know that it's grace. They have no ideas. They have no false impressions that they have somehow brought up some depth of strength from themselves to earn God's favor. They're not, uh, they're not misinformed. They know God didn't have to be kind to them. He didn't have to be kind to them for a moment. He could have treated them just like he treated their brother or their sister or their unsaved father that, landed, that, is, that is presently perishing in hell. He could have done that. But he didn't. And what does that do to them? It causes them to be humble. And it causes them to be grateful. And without going into all the details of what I might have said, it causes them to be obedient. What does the Apostle Paul say of himself in these verses that we skimmed over earlier? Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, 
separated into the gospel of God. God whom I serve in my spirit. Grace affected him. It didn't make him indifferent. It didn't allow him to be lascivious. It caused him to be grateful and to be humble and to be obedient and to be given up to God. And wherever there is grace that converts the soul, those things will be present. If a child is converted, a child's in a public school where there's a lot of blasphemies, or a child's in a Christian school, if a child is converted, they will not be indifferent, nor will they sin and say, well, it's okay, God will forgive me. They will be filled with humility. God didn't have to save me. I could be just like that kid down the street. God didn't have to be merciful to me. And they'll be obedient. And they will not have the obedience necessarily of a person who's been in grace for 25 years. But they'll be so grateful that God did not treat them according to their sins. That they'll be obedient to this God. Every adult who's converted, every adult who knows the grace of God in truth, will never be indifferent to grace. They may have times of relapse, they may have times of dullness, they may have times when spiritual things seem distant, but the normal course of their life will not allow them to be indifferent to grace. They'll always be thinking, who did make me to differ? And they'll be grateful, and they'll be humble, and they'll be obedient. Well, Paul wants them to know, as he writes this letter, I am a recipient of grace. And next he's going to tell them, I have also received apostleship unto obedience of faith unto the nations. That it's not only a matter of grace now, but grace does lead to a gospel of obedience. And that's what I would like us to see, God willing, next time. I would like to close by just this observation. It's something that was intimate in all of the verses that we looked at, or in many of the verses, over and over and over again, if you noticed in those verses. It said that grace is through Jesus Christ. The very passage that we looked at in verse 5, it is through him that Paul received his grace and apostleship. And those of you who are here who cannot earn God's favor, who may have struggled to reform yourself, but cannot, if there's any such person who has a sense that they need grace, it will not be found in any organizations, it will not be found anywhere other than in the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of you may have heard that since you were a child, and maybe it doesn't mean very much to you. Maybe we need to have some private conversations. Maybe you need to seek out a child of God and talk with him earnestly about the concerns of your soul and about the Bible. But don't waste your efforts in trying to find the grace of God through some program or through some self-help course. It is only to be found in Christ Jesus. And the Lord Jesus invites all who are weary and are heavy laden to come to him. And none that come to him will ever be cast out.